0: Hey, photographers, welcome to the Boca Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Holritz, and I'm here to help you build a sustainable photography business. That means improving your photo skills, building on your business knowledge, and honing your marketing abilities, but it also means helping you work more efficiently so you don't get burnt out in the long run. We do try to bring this show to you commercial-free, so make sure to check out our sponsors, photographersedit.com, and milu.com. Photographer's edit is custom photo editing for the professional photographer and milu is the simplest way to create and manage timelines and shot lists for the events you're photographing. Again, photographersedit.com and milu.com. All right, let's get into today's episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back for yet another Boca podcast episode, and we, we are taking a step outside our, our normal programming, if you will, and we've got a non another non-photographer actually on the podcast today, uh, Dr. Benjamin Hardy. It is a privilege to have you on the show. I appreciate you joining us.
1: Yeah, grateful to be with you. Hopefully, uh, we can provide some uh, perspectives that uh, may be a little outside the, the typical zone, but would be incredibly helpful to your audience.
0: Well, we're going to dig into a a really, at least to me, what is a fascinating topic. And and I think what we're going to end up titling this is just simply, you aren't your personality. And the reason I name it that is because our industry, the photography industry these days is quite obsessed with this notion of a personality type, um, or of course, the Enneagram. And we'll get into each of those in a little bit more detail later, But uh, this is a really popular point of conversation. And so I think it's actually highly relevant to have you on the show. And uh, you've actually got a book coming out called Personality Isn't Permanent. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a bit as well. But um, would you you mind, and I, I hate to kind of robotically read off your bio, would you mind just introducing yourself briefly to our listeners and let us know a little bit about your background?
1: Yeah, absolutely. A little bit of background. I'm 32 years old. Recently finished my PhD in organizational psychology. During my PhD experience, uh during the first year, my wife and I became foster parents of three kids, three yeah. siblings, which was wild. Never been parents before. That was more her agenda than mine, but you know, you support each other and you have a higher sense of purpose when you when you're doing stuff like that together. And, uh, we ended up through my PhD program, you know, having these kids fighting the foster system, ultimately, you know, being able to adopt them. And, um, that was in 2018. So we, we got the kids in 2015. That was during my first year, 2018. We were able to adopt them in a month after the adoption. My wife got pregnant. We had twins in December of 2018. So 2018 was a big year. We, uh, We ended up going from zero to five kids and between 20,
0: I I have to interject here just really quick because uh, there's this brilliant picture of you and your family on your website for everybody listening in. If you go to benjaminhardy.com, we'll link to us in the show notes as well. Uh, But this idea that you're talking about going from zero to five in a year uh, might be a bit more real if you're able to see this picture and it's a beautiful picture of of you and your family there on, on your website. It's amazing.
1: Thank you, dude. That's really, uh, really kind of you. Um, yeah, it is a good photo. We had a, we had a good photographer in that case. Um, (laughs) and, uh, what's interesting really about that picture is that for one, me and my wife are not the same people that we were when we first got those three older kids. Mm. And if you look at those three older kids, they are fundamentally not the same people they were when we got them. Mm. Um, you know, so this picture was taken ish five years after we got the kids. Uh, It was actually in 2019. So four and a half ish years, they the experiences we've had through these through this experience has totally changed our lives, our perspectives, our maturity. And obviously, that that goes a lot into personalities and permanent and about how your current and your former selves are two totally different people. But uh, yeah, that, 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 that was an amazing experience. But interestingly, at the exact same time, in 2015 is when I started blogging online during that first year and literally right around the exact same time we got these kids.
0: And you're using Medium. Is is that still yeah, the yeah, platform that you Yeah, I use medium.com,
1: which is a, you know, a lot of your listeners may know what Medium is. It's a Silicon Valley based platform made by the people who made Twitter. Really interesting platform. Really good to me too. Uh, through these years from 2015 to 2018, I actually was the top writer on the platform and uh, was able to get, tens and tens of millions of views. Uh, it led to ultimately me getting a six-figure book deal, which led me to writing Willpower Doesn't Work and, you know, ultimately becoming a professional writer and having hundreds of thousands of emails. And And it was an amazing, really incredible experience. And I was, I was very lucky to find that platform at the right time to kind of be writing in a specific voice and from a specific perspective and to be able to share a lot of my own personal opinions, but also mix those with a lot of really good research. And uh, it was just... It was just fortuitous, honestly. But I, I will say that there's a lot more to that, um, and we can go into that if you want. As far, as I mean, and, and there's a lot to why I believe I was able to succeed so fast. Uh, a lot of it had to do with luck and context, but a lot of it had to do with intentionality and and being very specific about my goal and then the process I went through. Um, and so there's there's a lot there because I see a lot of writers and a lot of bloggers that were there when I was there, even just starting, and a lot of them never really went anywhere with their writing even though they are obsessed with the process, obsessed mm. with, you know, and, and there's a big difference between practice and, and deliberate practice.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that's a great point to make, actually. And and you, you mentioned the word specific. Specificity is a really interesting point of conversation when it comes to something that we talk about a lot here on the podcast, which is brand position. So I think we're going to actually have a great segue in this conversation to that very point in just a couple of minutes. So we'll, we'll actually cool. come back to that. Um, but I, I want to start off with something that that we talk about. Uh, I with guests that come on the show quite regularly, actually, which is time management. I mean, you just mentioned five kids. I have two of my own. Um, Adding three more to that, I can only imagine what that would be like. But is there something that you've learned um, as a writer, as a speaker, um, and I have to assume that at least part of your time is spent working from home, um, that has enabled you to effectively manage time more effectively so you've got a little bit of space yourself, but then you also have that space for your family?
1: Yes, I have lots of opinions about time. <laughs> uh, I actually wrote an ebook. It was my first book, and it was called "Slipstream Time Hacking." Yeah, and it was it was a, it's based on you know I walked out of Christopher Nolan's movie Interstellar. Yes, mind blown. And I'm a big fan of his movies, but I, I really believe in the idea of time relativity and about you know the idea that the faster you move through space or the ma- the faster you move through desired goals, the slower time is for you. Hmm. Um, And and if you don't have intentional goals, and if you're not making progress, then time goes very fast. And you find that, you know, a year went by and nothing really changed. Um, So I I, I believe that even the idea of a wormhole, you know, in the movie, wormholes drop you through a different space and time, I I, I seek and I experience those things all the time, Hmm. where, you know, I may have a goal that's 10 years out. And I ask myself, how do I get there in six months? You know, how do I get there in, in a year? And figure, and there's always ways to get where you want to go insanely faster if you're kind of more lateral in your approach, not traditional, and if you're more bold and willing to look stupid and willing to learn. And so, I'm very aggressive at getting where I want to go. But as far as like day to day time management, uh, there's a lot of things. You know, let me let me just first start by explaining my current situation and what I'm currently up to, and sure. then kind of reverse engineering my process. So. You know, in 2020, I'm launching two books. I'm launching Willpower Doesn't Work, which, or sorry, sorry, I'm launching Personality Isn't Permanent, which comes out in June. And I'm launching a book called Who Not How, which is actually very relevant to your question, to your audience. Who Not How is a co-authorship between me and Dan Sullivan. Dan Sullivan's the founder of Strategic Coach, which is uh, probably considered the number one entrepreneurial coaching company in the world. And he and I are writing a book that comes out through Hay House, in October. Okay. And that book is exactly what, about what you're talking about of delegation, et cetera. Um, it's about finding who's rather than doing all the how's. So, you know, not to devalue this podcast because every podcast is different, but I'm actually doing 500 this year, um, in the midst of launching two books wow. and probably writing hundred blog posts. And there's zero chance I could do that without number one, knowing what I want, Number two, being fiercely committed to it and using my, my future self as the story that I use to explain myself and then creating extreme boundaries to that. So just as an example, I was, I was talking to a a friend of mine yesterday and he, he told me, dude, Ben, do you want to go to breakfast? And I said, dude, I can't be as spontaneous as you because I'm incredibly well-planned this year. I'm spontaneous in certain situations, but this year I'm incredibly committed to various outcomes. And there's zero chance I could do all of this myself. Like one of the big ideas in psychology is decision fatigue and decision fatigue means that you're, you're having to make too many decisions which wears out your willpower. Yeah. And so as an entrepreneur or as someone working from home or as someone who's trying to do a lot of things, you have to limit the amount of decisions you make on a daily basis. And the only way to do that is to get other people to make those decisions for you. Like in the case of this podcast, um, I didn't schedule this podcast. I, didn't even, I don't even know how this podcast came about, but I'm incredibly grateful to be on the show. But with Willpower Doesn't Work, a year and a half, two, three years ago, I didn't have that who. Uh, I did all the hows myself. I scheduled the podcasts. And so hiring people is super important for obviously setting your life up so that you can focus on the things that matter. In my case, just showing up and having a great conversation with you. Um, if, if, if I had to schedule this and go through the process, your vision becomes incredibly limited because you're doing all the things yourself rather than just setting your life up so that you can show up the way you want. One, just a couple of last thoughts, really. Sure. I'm very big on boundaries and on priorities. So like, I will not work after 3 p.m. Unless it's an extreme situation. Like my kids get out of school at 3 p.m. And like we've made a commitment, me and my wife, I'm going to go, I'm going to pick them up. So like, I'm not going to be here. You know, I have an office about 10, 15 minutes from home. Like I'm not going to be here after 3 p.m. Okay. Uh, Except under extreme situations. And I'm going to go home and I'm going to pick up my kids and I'm going to be super with them and invest in that situation. And one of the, one of the big problems that people have with effective recovery is that outside of work, they don't have anything meaningful that absorbs them. And so, like in psychology, there's a concept called psychological detachment from work. And basically, what it means is that in order to be in an in extreme flow state and be totally absorbed in what you're doing, you need really good recovery. And also, you need total detachment in thought and in deed <laughs> from your work. And I find that the only way to do that is to have extreme novelty and interest in the other areas of your life where you can get absorbed just as much as you would in your work, in the other areas of your life. And for me, mostly that's my kids, but there's other things I do to recover. Um, but I think that that allows me to be in a flow state when I do work so that I can accomplish more in a day than you know I could in a week without being in flow. So those are some of the things. I mean, there's so many others, but uh, I'm big on morning routines. I'm big on working when my mind is fresh. I'm big on scheduling um, and just stuff like that.
0: That idea of extreme detachment, what's the, uh, I guess, from work specifically, so you 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 detach from work, you go and focus wholly on something or someone else. What's the mechanism there that allows you then to come back and not just be fresh, but enter that flow state more easily?
1: It's a brilliant question. Think, think in terms of fitness for a second. First off, you need intensity. And you, intensity and novelty are two really important concepts that I think as people age, they experience less of. Um, and this also to some degrees goes into deliberate practice, but again, we can go into that later, but in, in working out, if you want to get really stronger, achieve some specific goal, let's just say do an Ironman or, or become like an amazing powerlifter, et cetera. Um, you would need to have very focused and, and probably strenuous workouts, but the only way for you to actually get better is to be just as prioritized, if not potentially more prioritized in your recovery, such as your sleep. Like a lot of people don't get stronger because they literally are addicted to the short-term gains, whereas, you know, you have to have a long-term perspective and you've got to recover yourself, good sleep, Um, you know, all the other things that it's really all the other things that (laughs) set up and allow you to succeed in your work. And so I think thinking about how your life is set up is, is big as far as zoning back in uh, to get myself into like, let's just say a flow state. I do think it's important to have specific goals, like to know what you're going to do that day. Like if you, for example, if you wake up and you don't know what 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 like one or two things you're going to accomplish, then you're going to deal with a lot of decision fatigue. You're going to have to think and make decisions in the morning about what you need to do. And that's already going to burn your best energy. So it's best to know what you're already going to focus on and not have too, too many things you're going to do. Focus on results over, um, you know, effort and process. Focus on what are the few things that are going to create the biggest result. And what are the few things to focus on now? And I think the best way to frame that is with timelines. Like, just as an example, you know, I'm writing this book with Dan Sullivan right now. I know that the final draft has to be done in three weeks from now. There's a million things I could do with my mornings. But right now, the best thing I can do is just to finish this book. And so, you know, I focus on my rest and my recovery. And by the way, what research shows is that 16% of creative ideas happen while you're working. <laughs> Most of them are going to happen while you're recovering, like either just chilling, you know, in the shower, uh, playing sports, working out, being with your kids or whatever, like your ideas are going to come together actually while your mind is relaxing and like laterally flowing. But in order to get that that good stuff, you need to be intense while you're while you're working and then while you're recovering the things really start coming together. Um, but I, I do have a morning routine. You know, I wake up, leave my environment. I go through a journaling process about my about my goals and about what I'm going to focus on that day. I usually work out before I before I get into writing. And, you know, then I just like really, you know, after my journaling and my workout, I usually have like 60 to 120 minutes before a first appointment. And that to me is a forcing function, which is like I've got 60 to 90 minutes to focus or 60 to 120 minutes to focus. And I just really hit it, but I also have deadlines. Like I have I have I have to get things done. And because things have to get done, they do get done. And so I live my life by deadlines and, and um you know by specific goals and by collaborations and things like that that force me to use my time well and force me to focus on just a few things rather than waking up and not being sure what to do.
0: This is really great. I mean, there's, there's a wealth of information here that you're sharing, and we could probably almost hit an individual podcast episode on each each idea or big idea that you've shared. But you mentioned the significance of extreme detachment. And of course, what that ultimately enables us to do is to put more intensity into the other factor that you alluded to, which is limiting our time for the sake of working more efficiently. If we're fresh, we're going to be able to do that. Um, and then kind of working further backwards, you mentioned earlier the significance of delegation. And that ultimately enabling you to work more efficiently as well. Connie was my main contact in getting this podcast episode or interview set up. But what enables, at least based on what you've shared with me so far, it seems what enables you to be able to effectively delegate is, number one, to know effectively what it is that you're actually striving for. We we talk a lot about this idea of a big picture view here On the podcast, big picture goals personally, which then trickle down to business goals, which then trickle down to how we spend our time each day. So being clear about that upfront, knowing who you are, and then ultimately knowing your boundaries as well. Uh, And and I can only I mean if if you're going to be on 500 podcasts and and write 100 blog posts, there's no way that you could be the one doing all the busy work behind the scenes and simultaneously get that kind of proactive work done for the sake of promoting your book. Um, these are really, really powerful principles. And, and I think all of our listeners in some form or fashion could at least apply one or two of these and see a big difference in their day-to-day lives.
1: there's a lot there, there's a lot there. And I think that, um, it's knowing what to do and knowing what not to do and knowing sometimes what to let go of, you know, like you, you can learn through your failures, but also you can't, you. You know, the more clear you get on your future self and then ultimately define goals and and create results towards that, like the more you've got to really own what you believe in and what you want. And and for me, I, I, you know, it's essential to clarify your identity and who you want to be and then to be fine saying no two great opportunities outside of that. So, I mean, I have to say no, for example, to a great, brilliant, uh, marketer, a guy who I would have loved to spend the morning with, I had to just say, no, I can't have breakfast with you. Cause like it, it wasn't worth the moment and sometimes opportunities pop up when you can be a little bit more flexible, but, um, it's, it's really about ultimately being deliberate, you know, and this, this is kind of where the practice idea comes in, but, being deliberate about what you want, intentional about what you want, and then ultimately making hard decisions. And with every decision comes cost, you know, and, and, um, becoming increasingly okay with being ignorant to the options that are outside of what you want and developing an increasingly good filter or a high quality filter at having things meet your, your, you know, like your mind, like, you know, Connie is one of my filters. Whitney's another filter, like, my goals are a huge filter. My future self is my filter. So like less and less makes its way to me. That's not congruent with what I want in the future. Um, And and that allows me to have, and, and the only way to create that filter is through ultimately making intense decisions and then designing your life around those decisions if you don't have a clear filter on who you want to be, then you're going to have a lot of input come in. That's going to distract or confuse right, you. Right. And you're going to ultimately be doing a lot of tasks that are outside of, you know, a flow state. And so you're going to deal with a lot of decision fatigue, have way less willpower, have way less confidence, make way less results. Right. Whereas if you're in a flow state, um, during your time working and you're just rocking out the things you love and you've set up an environment so that that it, so that that's supported and boundaries and recovery, then not only is the life outside of work really enjoyable and rich but it also uh, it, it funnels and fuels greater work um, and so
0: well it, it's I think it's really the, the big difference there um, or at least one of the, the the big differences there is between being reactive which I think a lot of photography business owners, and certainly I've been guilty of it as well, are guilty of, you know, you have that incoming stimuli, whether it's the internet or social media or email or whatever the thing, and you're constantly reacting versus taking a step back proactively, like you were talking about, Dr. Hardy, creating or, or establishing this picture of the life that you want to live, the person that you want to be, and then working from that and deciding, okay, what is it going to take to get there? And that then just naturally acts as a filter uh, for the things that aren't relevant in the moment. That, that's what enabled you to be able to say, no, I can't meet with this particular author because it doesn't fit the bigger picture goals that I have, the person who I want to be, what I'm trying to create. And, and again, it's a really great reminder for all of our listeners, but that kind of big picture view ultimately enables specificity as well you alluded to this idea of specificity earlier when it came to your success on medium and i think it plays well to the conversation that we have here quite a bit on the podcast talking about brand position i mean brand position positioning ourselves against the market for the sake of creating distinction standing out um Much of what enables that type of distinction is specificity. Can you speak to the significance of that specificity and the success that you've had, particularly on Medium?
1: I love what you're saying, by the way. One of my favorite quotes actually comes from Robert Kiyosaki, and he said that intelligence is the ability to make finer distinctions. Hmm. And I think that um, making finer distinctions requires, first off, high quality education, you know, continuously learning. I love the quote from a land button that if you're not embarrassed by who you were 12 months ago, you haven't learned enough. <laughs> and, I love that. Yeah, and, and it's just so good. And so I think that, you know, hopefully your current self makes finer distinctions than your former self. Hopefully you've got better priorities, better perspectives. You're more mature. Right. Um, you can make better decisions. Uh, you can say no to higher quality things because you're more clear on where you want to go. Uh, and hopefully by that same token, you You haven't overly attached to your current views and your current perspective because hopefully your future self sees things much better than your current self mm. and they can make finer distinctions as far as priorities decisions situations inputs than your current self but when it comes to yeah that specificity, I think that you know it's really easy to i think in the beginning when you're beginning to decide who you want to be. Uh, you, you, you observe others who are doing some, 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 something similar. You know, you look at someone who's in your situation it could be like a, a photographer with a really good business or a really great brand and they're just killing it. And, and you can get a lot of direction from them, but ultimately it, you have to think about who you want to be, you know, right. how you want to stand and what matters to you and where you want to focus your priorities. Cause if you're always drawing solely on other people, then you're never going to really, I don't think develop the momentum of true creative work. And so like, for me, there's a lot of people who influence my thinking. I mean, I could point to several people who, who have served as kind of initial guides to a direction, but I also have guides or, or mentorships or, or heroes, et cetera, who are totally different. You know, like one example is like, I'm quite a religious person, to be honest with you. And like, there's, there's there's there's, people who I draw from that are like not in my realm at all, you know, it'd be like Albert Einstein studying like food science, you know, but that influencing how he, how he does his physics. So like, I spend a lot of time way outside my subject matter and, you know, really learn about the things that I want. And also my future self is very different. Let's just say from some of my favorite authors, like, and so you have to, you have to clarify who your future self is and who you really want to be because your goal shapes your process ultimately. Um, and, and you know, you, you can't actually engage in deliberate practice, which is meaningful learning without having a clear future self in mind. Like the, the research on that's very clear. Like you can, there's a lot of people who go through routine practice where they'll get up, they'll take pictures, for example, every day, but they're not taking pictures towards a vision of ultimately where they want to go. And so the, so their process daily isn't translating into transformational learning. Um, for me, as an example, when I was first blogging on Medium, the future self that I was imagining, you know, and this was back in 2015, was that I was a professional writer. Uh, I was, you know, I could provide for my family, writing books, having conversations like this, and ultimately that I, uh, that I was with one of the major publishing houses. I wanted to be in the traditional space. Um, those were the demographics or characteristics of the future self I wanted. And so from there, then I had to gather a lot of information. Um, ultimately, like, how do you become this person? And it it came to my, I I ultimately landed on the specific goal of getting a six figure book deal with one of the major publishers. And from that goal, then you can reverse engineer the process. How do you actually do that? Uh, I learned that I needed at least 100,000 email subscribers. And from there, that shaped my process. Like I had to learn like, okay, what kind of blogger gets 100,000 email subscribers in the timeline I want? And ultimately, in writing on Medium, I was able to advance very fast because I was committed to an outcome. I was not committed to a process. I blogged for a purpose, and that was to get to the future self I wanted, specifically to getting the six-figure book deal and for the reasons that I wanted, whereas I notice a lot of creative people overemphasizing process over outcome. And from a learning perspective perspective, Uh, that's really bad advice. You can't actually effectively learn or deliberately practice without a clear future self in mind. That's why they call it deliberate. And so I think really thinking honestly, and I I think that this is something that really limits people, is that they're not fully honest with themselves or with others about what they genuinely want. Just fully admitting and making that the narrative of your identity that like, I want to do this. I want to do X. um, And I don't really care what people think or if I fail along the way, I'm going to be this person. And it, that, being explicit about your goals is really good for your identity, but it's also really helpful for your process. Um, and for me, my future self is different from other people. And so because of that, my process is going to be different. And ultimately, my outcomes are going to be different. My practice is going to be different. But if you're not clear on who you want to be, then you're going to be trying to mimic other people's processes. And that might, might get you f- some degree somewhere, but ultimately you're never going to develop a true brand because there's no identity behind your process.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, and, and I, I love how this is such a, a mirror to the concepts that we talk about here on the podcast. You have to start with, and again, I refer to it as a big picture view. It's, it's a phrase I borrowed from uh, Julie Morgan Morgenstern in her book, Time Management from the Inside Out. And she talks about the success that, uh, or that the most successful people in life have that big picture view that enables them to rise above the chaos uh, and ultimately filter out what's irrelevant. And being able to rise above the chaos, it comes from clarity about what you're actually trying to achieve. That enables you to filter out that which is irrelevant um, and be much more specific, in, in this case, in establishing a brand. We talk about this a lot with photographers, but ultimately how we spend our time day to day as well. And uh, so I love that this has been a theme really since the beginning of our conversation today. It's a good reminder for myself as well as for our listeners. Um, But I want to use this kind of as a segue to my main focus today, which is talking about your book, Personality Isn't Permanent. And I know this is probably a pretty loaded story, but with, I guess, the limited time that we have, we just kind of sum up, first of all, what your motivation was for even bringing a book like this to market. And then I want to dive into some of the concepts behind it.
1: Absolutely. I wasn't initially planning to write this book to because to be honest with you, personality is the most central subject in psychology. Um, it's the most broad, it's the most, uh, divisive. There's so many different theories explaining it that it's, it's a wash. Um, mm. I, I most of my writing has been, you know, more practical, more behavioral. Willpower Doesn't Work is very specific. This book is practical. It got there. Um, but the reason I wrote it was because in, in late 2018, I was reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And it's a very big, dense book on trauma. And what the author said, Bessel van der Kolk, was... I mean, and I I was thinking about ideas. For example, that Elaine Day Button quote that I shared with you. You know, if you're not embarrassed by who you were 12 months ago, you didn't learn enough. Uh there's a, a apocryphal quote from Albert Einstein, the the measure of intelligence is the ability to change. Mm. You know, there's a lot of ideas that I've I've had and I and I love change and transformation. So I mean you know and, and interestingly, I was hearing a lot. Like the word personality kept popping up. I was I was at a conference, a Gabor Mate conference with a friend, and he was talking about you know, just personality being the byproduct of trauma and things like that. But when I was reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score, it really brought everything together where it led me to saying, I have to write a book on personality. And, and, and a few of the things he said in that book was one, that trauma leads to what's called a frozen personality. And a frozen personality is basically where your personality stops developing from whatever the traumatic experience was. Okay. So it could have been when you were 5, 10, 15 years old, but some event happened, you internalized it, it became a story, and then your personality became a coping mechanism to avoid and not deal with the trauma. Right. Um, and so trauma leads you down a very limiting path and a very limiting view of yourself and you become incredibly emotionally rigid and stuck in the past. And then the other thing that Bessel talked about, which was interesting to me, I mean, obviously, he said that personality should never stop developing. And so if it's stopped developing, then it means it's frozen, and stuck in some former experience that hasn't been reframed and and moved on from. But the other thing he talked about, and again, these were the experiences that ultimately led me to saying, okay, this is going to be the book, and this is going to be a harder book (laughs) than anything I've tried. Um, But he talked about how trauma shatters imagination, and about how you know, the more extreme the PTSD, the less imagination, the more inflexible a person is at thinking, the more dogmatic Hmm. their views, um, the more black and white their identity and the less they can imagine different scenarios or, or different perspectives. And obviously imagination is crucial to learning. Imagination is crucial to memory. It's also crucial to imagining a future self and setting goals. Wow. And so it, it really helped me realize that, you know, and this is just one aspect. I mean, this is one section of the book, but it helped me realize there's so many components that lead people to having the personality that they have. And it's the exact opposite of what most people are taught, that your personality is innate and things like that, and that it's unchangeable and inflexible and it's who you really are. And so I just felt like there was so much inf- misinformation in the world. And I felt like, man, I think I've got to write this book. The last thought, and I know I'm kind of over-explaining, was that through my PhD, I was surprised to find that, type-based personality tests, like Enneagram, tests like Myers and Briggs, like these are not scientific at all. And I came to understand kind of how psychometrics work and how how to validate and test and make tests. But every one of my professors in my PhD program told me, you know, how laughable and how non-scientific, specifically Myers and Briggs and all of these tests that categorize people as types hmm. are just fundamentally pseudoscience. And so I just felt like, okay, these are so popular and there's so many myths around this idea and there's such lack of information as far as why we are the way we are, that um, I've got to write this book.
0: Well, you spoke to something that that's I find interesting um, and kind of plays on a conversation in this realm that that I hear quite a bit in the photography industry. You said that our personalities can kind of freeze at the time of trauma. And you alluded to Well, ultimately, the idea, I mean, how I relate to this anyway, is is actually taking the time with a therapist or otherwise to go and explore what's behind these behavioral patterns that we're calling a personality. Um, Because the the tendency, again, in our photography industry anyway, is just to kind of say, well, I'm an Enneagram, you know, whatever the number, or I am this personality type. And it's just uber simplistic summation of, of who this person is. Um, and and to take it a step further, and this is where I was going, a lot of times you hear, I am an introvert, or I am an extrovert. And to me, that just seemed extremely simplistic, especially because of a personal experience that I had where I I was going into, as a photographer, getting involved in the industry pretty heavily, in some cases having the opportunity to speak, but certainly being in groups of people that I, I would go into a party. And there might be you know, 100 people in there, 50 people in there, and I'd go in and I'd start making my rounds and having conversations, and I found that I was exhausted. And if I bought into the narrative um, about being an introvert, uh, I could simply say, as, as many people do in our industry, well, I'm an introvert, so I naturally get exhausted being around people, so I need to, to, to get away and take a little bit of time to myself, and then I'll be revived and I can go back to it. I actually took the time to, to take a step back and look at why I was so exhausted, and what I realized was that I was putting on a show. And then, of course, you can take it a step further and and dig into why was I trying to put on a show when I'm going in and engaging with these people? And when I took the time to to explore, again, this line of thinking, it enabled me to be able to step beyond what was a very limiting idea, this idea that I'm an introvert and I'm exhausted just being around people, don 't actually understand the psychology that was driving that exhaustion and make change to the way that I was thinking, ultimately the way that I believed, which has enabled me to to relax so much more to be able to engage in these environments now in a largely different way because I understood the psychology behind it and um, so this is just a, from a, a personal experience, but I just think that these conversations around personality types or even saying something like i 'm an introvert or an extrovert are way too simplistic in nature very reactive in nature. You know, I, I think we have a tendency as human beings to, to look for simple answers to make sense of our life and then, and then just kind of stop right there. And, and I think that we need to actually make the effort to go a step or two or five or 10 beyond that um, to better understand the psychology driving those behavioral patterns because it'll enable us to be able to, to take our lives much, much further as a result. What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, I think you're obviously a very mindful, thoughtful human being and self examining. And so I think that everything you've just described is really fascinating and spot on and uh, a level of mindfulness that is rare. Yeah, just just to kind of, you know, shed some further perspectives on, on why these types of tests are, are first off, attractive, second off, incredibly limiting, and also false psychologically. Sure. First off, there's no such thing as a pure anything as far as a type. Like even um, Carl Jung, the psychologist who is kind of the inspiration between the ideas of the Myers and Briggs. A specific quote of his is that there's no such thing as a pure introvert or extrovert. Such a person would be in a lunatic asylum. Um, <laughs> like there's no such thing as a pure anything. Yeah. Because if you were so extreme, I mean, so if you actually say you're an introvert, And if you actually understand what that means, what that means is like you fear all social situations, which can't be accurate. Um, And so obviously you're not a pure introvert, but the label obviously can lead to tunnel vision, Hmm. which is what they do. So in psychology, there's a concept called selective attention. Basically, it's the idea that we have our own mental filter based on our identity. You know, Stephen Covey put it this way. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. Um, You know, that's true of... Ourself, it's also true of the past. We don't see the past as it is. We see the past as we are. Hmm. And so the reason people love these tests is because they haven't gone to the same level of self-introspection that maybe you have, and maybe they haven't then come up with some clear goals, and they haven't formulated their own identity narrative and a reason for that narrative, which is work. What these tests do, they're, they're very lazy, fast food thinking, is that you can quickly get an idea of who you are with a quick snapshot, like whatever a test provides. Um, and so they, they're very relieving because they give you a sense of identity. And you can then use that identity to explain yourself because identity is shaped through storytelling. And so if I can quickly get a score, like a, you know, an INFJ or a blue or an X or whatever whatever the test tells me I am. And yes, it feels semi-accurate because you're the one who took the score. It's self, it was self-described. You're the one who answered the questions within the limits of the test. And so it came back based on your own answers. And so of course it's going to feel like it came from you, but those tests give you a sense of identity. You can then feel like you've got some constraints and boundaries on how you can explain yourself, which is psychologically relieving. Um, Having too much complexity or ambiguity is, is difficult. And so to be able to quick, get a quick snapshot and say, okay, this is who I am. Um, it's, it smooths out your filter and it allows you to, to see things a certain way. Uh, what it does though, is it creates tunnel vision and ultimately mindlessness and a lack of, uh, imagination and ultimately a fixed mindset because like, there's a lot of good research from, uh, Ellen Langer. She's a Harvard psychologist and she studied mindfulness for decades. And what she found is, is that if people overly assume a label, then what they do? Then you can't. You you are mindless to anything that's outside that label. So if right. you defined yourself as depressed, you will mindlessly ignore or downplay all of the many situations in a given day when you're actually not feeling depressed. Um, you just won't even recognize them. You won't categorize them as meaningful memories. You'll just you'll you'll chalk them up as not. You know they don't. You just won't notice them. To be honest with you, you'll be mindless to them. <laughs> and so that's really what labels do. If you overly assume them is they, they lead you to, unfortunately, pers- first off, you defend the label. You overly, you overly identify with it. It leads you to being inflexible. But then you, you pursue goals that, um, that reinforce the label. You, the label or the identity that you've developed becomes the basis through which you set goals versus setting goals that you genuinely want as the basis for the personality or the identity you develop. I think it's a lot more powerful to decide who you want to be and then ultimately go through the transformation process of becoming that person, basing your personality on your goals versus your goals on your personality.
0: Yeah, well, it comes back to that idea again of just starting with your goals, being clear about what it is you're trying to achieve, which is, it's in such stark contrast to, these phrases that we hear in in our culture, you know, this idea of finding ourselves, like we're going to find this kind of arbitrary being out there and and attach ourselves (laughs) to it and become that thing or knowing, you know, quote, who we are, as opposed to deciding who we want to be. And then like you were talking about earlier, reverse engineering, how to get to that place, that's just so much more proactive in nature. But it's, it seems like there's, it's this kind of approach to or the obsession with personality types or otherwise, in some ways, and, and I don't want to create a blanket statement here, but in some ways it feels very lazy. If if somebody tells lazy. me who I am or what I am, then I can just kind of fit into that box and I'm good to go. Versus I wanna create this person. This is the life I wanna live. This is a person who I wanna be. I'm gonna to try to figure out how to make that happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's also the assumption that there's something that's incredibly naturally and easy, easy for you. Um, and that once you discover who you are, you can then pursue the things that are natural and easy to you. you know, and my guess would be you know, in studying high performance that if you're gonna do anything at a really high level, it's never gonna be easy. I mean, deliberate practice by nature is, is, is difficult. Um, you know, I'm considered a very successful, professional, high quality writer, but I'm telling you it's the hardest thing I do. Um, it's not easy at all, but it's what I choose. And, um, you're never going to find yourself like that is a false concept. Uh, and you're never going to find a purpose. Ultimately developing maturity is about choosing who you want to be, Mm. choosing what you believe and choosing what you're about. And also realizing that your future self is hopefully going to see things a lot better and that they'll hopefully have, they'll make finer distinctions in the future about what to prioritize, what to, what to set goals about. Um, and ultimately it's it's important to realize that your current identity is based on your current goals, even if you haven't been explicit about those. And so you then have to ask yourself, what am I actually pursuing with my with my attention and with my time? Why did I choose this? And then beginning to question and hopefully, you know be I think you've got to question your current identity and your current goals and think what would be better? What do I really want, or is this the most meaningful thing? And ultimately, uh, ex- continually exposing yourself to new things, continually learning new things, having new experiences, not avoiding difficult experiences. I mean, I, I myself, my goals, my purpose, you know, my personality, is is so different from who it was four or five years ago before I'd gone through the experience of ever having kids, or going through a PhD, or writing books, or failing, or learning how to make lots of money. Like how I view the world now is in stark contrast, and what I think is important, and what I say yes to is in stark contrast to where, I, I mean, even a year ago, you know, but even five years ago. And and that's really where the research on psychology or on personality has gone. Um, uh, Daniel Gilbert, the Harvard psychologist, he's done so many great studies, but one of the things he asks people is, you know, are you the same person you were 10 years ago? Like if you think about your views, your, even, you know, your situation, your habits, uh, your beliefs, your, your preferences, um, like, are you the exact same person you were 10 years ago? I mean, just asking you. Like, think about who you were 10 years ago and what your situation and your focus yeah. and your goals were. Like, are you that same guy?
0: Oh, my word. No, so far from it.
1: <laughs> well, and so what's interesting is, like, first off, you're obviously a goal-centric and obviously a, a thoughtful person. And, and it seems like you introspect and, and seek specific goals and 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 learning and, tra- and, and, and a change of ideas, you know? For sure. But even people who are not are very much aware that their current self is quite different from their former self. Um, But even still, even in taking some time to realize how much they've changed and their situation has changed and hopefully their views have developed, they almost always downplay potential change in the future. What Gilbert says is is that human beings are works in progress that mistakenly think they're finished. And the reason for that is, is that it's a lot easier to remember the past than to imagine the future. And so people, even if they've just thought about it, how much they've changed in the last 10 years, and they realize that they don't fully identify with their former self in many aspects. They don't assume that the change in the future is gonna be as big, um, which is totally false thinking. And it also leads to the non-development of imagining a bigger or a different future, and then going through the process, obviously, of deciding better, (laughs) more distinct goals, values, going through the process of changing learning experience. So, I mean, the hope, I think, of anyone listening to this podcast, if they want to have a better future is that hopefully their future self is quite different from their current self. And if, if that's the level of psychological flexibility that you have, and obviously the more confident and the more, you know, the more you learn and experience and and get used to dealing with challenge, complexity, and growth, the less you cling to your current identity and the less you are dogmatic and inflexible in your approach. Um, the more you also realize that your current view is radically limited, (laughs) both of yourself and of the world. Um, And hopefully when you become a little intentional and, and by the way, intentionality and even courage and, 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 and and movement towards specific goals is what leads to what are called peak experiences or learning experiences. And those are the experiences that Maslow said are required to becoming self-actualized, which is really to become flexible, and adaptive and learning those peak experiences, which are really just aha moments where you, I think make a finer distinction, honestly, where you realize that things are a little different than you thought before. You can see the past a little differently, former experiences differently. You can see yourself differently. You become less rigid and narrow in your filter and you begin to be a lot more broad and and flexible Hmm. in seeing things. Those types of experiences allow you far more imagination, confidence, creativity, and ultimately willingness to commit to specific goals. And I think that that's where you want to get to is where you can get better and better at choosing what you want, becoming that person and and then developing through that so that you can set better goals in the future.
0: We hear this, this phrase, or I've heard this phrase referenced maybe multiple times at this point in my life, but you know, the idea that love is what makes the world go around. I would tend to push back on that because I think rooted um, at even in love is an idea of, or this idea of belief, Uh, And a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to read a book uh, by Tony Robbins in which he talked about the significance of belief. And I actually ended up getting a a tattoo on the inside of my arm in in Japanese. I grew up in Japan, and uh, the the Japanese word for belief in this context anyway is kakshing. And Hmm. it's a reminder for me on a regular basis that ultimately what I believe, conscious or subconscious, is ultimately what drives my ability to, to create the life that I want. Um, belief, you've mentioned this word a number of times in our conversation right now, but we speak to the significance of belief as it relates to stepping beyond our so-called personality type to create the life that we want.
1: Yeah. Belief is an interesting word f- for me. I mean, obviously I think we, we, our beliefs really do dictate how we see ourselves and things like that. I, I think of beliefs more as narratives, okay, stories, um, Ways in which we f- we frame either ourselves or the world based on our experiences or based on our our, our education, you know. Yes. So, you know, like we have an experience and that leads to a, a frame or or a belief about who you are, what what the world is like. Um, and so for me, belief is more narratives and stories that shape your identity and your mental models of the world. And and um, so yeah, I think that we all obviously have beliefs, and I think that those beliefs are far more rigid than they need to be. Um, they actually can be really flexible. And I think that when when you become more, you know, introspective or, or just emotionally developed, really, and flexible, uh, you start to ask yourself, where did these beliefs come from? Just like you mentioned earlier. Uh, and usually they came from experiences and you come to realize that your personality has actually been frozen <laughs> from those experiences and you've, you've held to the same views for far too long. Right. And so I think you know, obviously journaling, whether it be therapy, what I think coaching and, uh, and honestly gaining more context and perspective yes, is, is a really great way to, um, is a great way to re-examine your, your beliefs. Um, that's one of the major flaws of personality tests. Um, aside from the fact that they're non-valid and non-consistent, so like, you know, there's a lot of research that shows if you take a test and you take another, you take the same test and in a different environment, even you'll probably get a different score mm. or in a different situation or four or five years later, or a few years later, uh, you're going to get different scores. But one of the problems with these tests is, is that they, they, they completely ignore context and you assume that the score you get or the label you acquire is always true when actually content is far more, uh, important than content. And, and so I think gathering context really reshapes your beliefs. And I'll, I'll share with you a story that makes this abundantly clear. And this is a re- a, re- a recent story that I heard from my mother-in-law. So my mother-in-law was recently in the gym exercising and there was a woman in the gym who was very overweight and the woman was wearing very tightly fitted gym clothing such that it was almost awkward for a lot of the people in the gym. And, you know, and people were kind of critical. My, my mother-in-law was just kind of observing the situation and she told me the story, but she could see the sneers and things like that. Um, and they ended up exercising next to each other. Uh, my mother-in-law and this woman. And my mother-in-law just started a conversation with her just to get to know this woman. And, and what she found out is that this woman had recently lost 150 pounds. Wow! And so how does that context or that information change your perspective of this woman?
0: Yeah. And and her choice to put on the tight fitting clothing. Yes. Yeah.
1: And maybe the confidence that she's using. I mean, right. I, I, it, actually from an identity perspective, the fact that she's wearing tightly fitted clothing is brilliant if you actually think about it. Sure. But what that shows is that it's not the woman. Again, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. The, the content of what you're looking at is not actually the reality. What you're seeing is through the lens of your context. And the other people who didn't know that this woman had lost 150 pounds were looking at her from a specific context. When my mother was, mother-in-law was able to get that, that information about seeing, understanding that this woman had just lost 150 pounds, A view of potentially uh, judgment or just this woman strange goes to utter amazement and inspiration. Like, holy cow, you're looking at the same woman, but now you're not looking at the same woman. Like, it's exactly what uh, Wayne Dyer said as far as, you know, when you change the way you see things, the things you see change. And so it's essential to get more context and understanding and perspective. Part of that's education and learning and going through new experiences, seeking novelty, seeking intensity. But one of the things you need to do specific to former experiences is gather more information, more context. Yeah. One example is myself. Like I grew up in a terrible situation. My parents got divorced. My father became a drug addict. Like that shaped my views, my, my narrative, my story, my frame in writing this book. And I, and we've gone through a lot of development. My father's changed his life a lot, but in order to adequately write this book, one of the things I had to do was ask his perspective on, on the former experiences where my father through my junior high and high school years was a total drug addict. <laughs> uh, and I had to, I wanted to ask his perspective and like figure out what was it, what was life like for him and what led him to those experiences and mm. how do he feel when like me and my brothers kind of abandoned him for a while. And in gaining context, not only through my PhD in psychology and adopting kids. And by the way, my father was adopted, but in seeking his experiences and his perspectives and what led to his decision-making, Uh, my whole view changed. Um, That context was so key to reshaping my filter of those experiences and understanding where he was coming from. It ultimately leads to a lot of empathy, compassion, perspective perspective that allows you to then change how you view something. Um, So I think that that's, that's really key when it comes to beliefs, in my opinion.
0: I mentioned that I had the tattoo for belief in Japanese on my left arm. On my right arm is the Japanese uh, character, the Japanese characters for the word choice, sentaku. And, and I think what you just shared here is is a perfect summation of this reality, which is that we have the ability to choose the belief system that drives who we are but we have to make that choice too, or we don't. And and again, we can react to everything that has happened to us and let ourselves just kind of fall into this label. Uh, I'd, rather, I'd much rather create the life that I want and choose the belief system that drives that. And uh, I think it's such a powerful opportunity that we have as human beings to do just that. And, you know, I mean, to playing on that and kind of my segue, the segue to my last question here, because I, I want to make sure I respect your time um, personality Isn't Permanent. This book is going to be coming out. We're going to make sure to to link to information about it in the show notes at bokehpodcast.com B-O-K-E-H, for everybody listening in, because um, you're going to want to get a copy of this. This is going to be one of those kind of life-changing, highly stimulating, and ultimately perspective-changing, as Dr. Hardy was alluding to, the books. But can we? can you maybe tease just a little bit one of the principles, one of your favorite principles in the book? That will enable our listeners to begin to move outside of that limiting box that we've been talking about now for a bit. Their so-called personality type, in order to create the life that they want.
1: Yeah, incredibly, and and thank you for the interview and for the questions and for your thoughts. I uh, I've really enjoyed hearing your perspectives, and I, I'm a big believer in choice. I think that you know you have a cho- you you do have the choice as far as your mental frame, your beliefs, your ideas. Yeah. Um, you even have the choice of how you frame your memories and, and the memories you develop. And, you know, just as an example, you know, and I'll share this thought and then I'll share kind of a strategic move that people can make. But we recently, I, I recently dropped my two sons off at, at a neighbor's house cause they were going to do yard work or something. And my kids, like they grew up in the country out in South Carolina <laughs> where I did my PhD and like, they love like just doing yard work and tools and stuff like that. Like stuff I'm not even interested in. Um, <laughs> But, like, they loved it, and they went and did it all day. And, like, they love this family because this family has a ton of, like, boys. And, like, they love being outside and doing this stuff. And it was interesting. Like, they were there all day. Like, got to spend a Saturday there, eat pizza. Just, like, literally, like, it was the perfect Saturday for them. But when I was driving home with them, like, they were first off stoked. But then I was just asking, like, so what, like, what did you love? You know, and and they they were sharing a few good things, but then they started like shifting to like negative things and like a little bits of complaints here and there. And I was like, I I told him to stop for a minute. I said, literally you are forming the memory of this experience right now. Hmm. Um, so if you're going to go ahead and start down that path of thinking about all the negative aspects, like you can go ahead and go down that path, but just remember you are literally shaping how you remember this experience. So like, if you want to remember this as a bad day, go ahead and keep complaining to me. But if you, but you just had a great day. Like if you want to remember this as a positive day, like how about we reshape how we're explaining this? And like, it wasn't a bad day and it didn't bug you. Like why I think that they, you know, it's easy to get into the habit of complaining, honestly. And so anyways, that said, you get to choose how you remember things. Memory is incredibly flexible and fluid. Um, And ultimately, as you described, it's actually your choice how you remember things. I choose to remember my former experiences is incredibly positive. And if the past is something that you're not afraid of, but something that you are gaining increasing context towards and are learning from and narrating your past becomes information. It's information you can use. I mean, my former experiences are information that I can use and therefore my past has happened really for me. I'm the beneficiary of a vast amount of information, just like information you can get from reading a book. If your past is not information, but if it's still emotion, which means you haven't resolved it, mm. um, then your past is literally driving you and the decisions you make. And it's stopping you from potentially creating the life you want. Instead, you're avoiding dealing with whatever it is and you're, you're making emotionally-based decisions that are generally limited based on a fixed mindset and ultimately probably dogmatic and narrow in the thinking. Wow. Um, so, it, so it's, yeah, I mean, but Gabor Mate and many people say that personality for most people is a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism for unresolved emotional difficulties. Whoa. You know, um, I love stuff, that. If you think about the patterns, you know, the pa- if your life is incredibly routine and overly pattern based uh, and if generally you feel like you're quite the same person in views and in attitudes as you were even like a couple years ago, that's actually probably not a great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like hopefully, hopefully if you develop and evolve and have new experiences, not only would you explain the past and even remember the past differently, but you would, you would hopefully explain your future differently as well. And you would, you would use the future as not only the filter for your decisions, but the basis for the choices you make here and now and the experiences you have, rather than being defined by former experiences and former behaviors. And having the past predict the future, you actually would be defined by the future that you believe in that you want. And your behaviors would be channeled through that. Uh, your narrative would be based on where you want to go. And your experiences would be curated based on the learning you want to have. As an example, like my wife and I, we couldn't fully predict all of the things that came out of taking on foster kids. But we had desires and beliefs and values into the type of people we wanted to be. And so we chose a transformational experience that we knew would change us. We were defined by future experiences, not past experiences. And so, you know, that's really how you upgrade your subconscious is first off, you speak, you know, into the future or into the declarative who you're going to be. The words you use are pretty powerful, but also then the behaviors that you go through, you know, your behavior signals back to you, the type of person you are, you know, that they call that self signaling in psychology. And it
0: it seems like that, that might be like the only place where, or at least one of the few areas where these so-called personality types, uh, or Enneagram tests where they represent behavioral patterns. And in some ways, I guess that's kind of a positive thing and that you're Um, you're acknowledging or at least becoming more aware of behavioral patterns. And I I think the problem is that people just stop there versus saying, okay, this is, these are my tendencies right now, but I have the ability to step beyond them. And this is how I need to change my belief system in order to do so.
1: Yeah. I think that's part of it. I mean, I I think one thing to really consider with these tests, I mean, for example, there's a lot of research that shows that the conditions in which you take that test influence your score, um, right. Like, you know, you got to really ask yourself, even your emotional state, the moment you took the test and the reason you took it, like, is the score you got always the score that you're you're going to reflect? And uh, yeah, you can get a good snapshot, like you just described of some tendencies and habits, potentially, or some current views that you then can ask yourself, are these the ones I want to perpetuate?
0: Would you say that there's any value to and and I know that some might argue that that knowing somebody else's Enneagram type or personality type better enables you to interact with that individual. Is that another potential positive of, of these personality types or Enneagram? Uh, labels?
1: In my opinion, no. Okay. I, I don't know the personality of everyone I interact with. And if I did, I don't know if that would improve my life. Like, what what that assumes is that, I mean, how many new people do you meet a day? You know, like I think becoming mindful and flexible and becoming interested and like learning how to actually like meet new people and also not overly assuming that they're not, that you, it assumes that the personality profile that you think that they have is always them. When people are not consistent, (laughs) like in different scenarios and situations, you're going to see them differently. So rather than overly assuming that a person is their label, it's a lot more powerful to be emotionally intelligent to the situation, to be mindful and to, to be contact. interested. You use that yeah, word exactly. interested, which I think is great. Yeah. Like it, every be conversation not interesting. You know what I mean? Like yeah. be interested in the person, ask them how they're doing today. Like be aware, ask, you know, get better at people. Be like curious, that's, that's the key. That's the, that's really the key. I mean, I, I think that, overly assuming that a person is the way they are would actually limit your ability to develop a transformational relationship with them. It would would limit so many aspects of how you would relate to them. Um, it would lead you to being mindless and and overly judgmental and and limit their potential for change, but also it would limit your thoughts and what the relationship could be. Hmm. Um, and so I, I don't, I have I don't take those tests seriously at all. And if someone tells me their score I know that that's not even a reality, but a snapshot based on the situation they were in and uh, that it's not always true that context changes things and that they have, that they're, that they've changed a lot. They're going to keep changing and that with context, they're going to show up differently. And so I think it's just better to just see people as, as a lot more complex and interesting than a single label. Well,
0: and I think that kind of beautifully sums up our conversation, or at least yeah. as far as we can go today, because I know we, yeah, could, totally. we could keep going for a long time. Of course. Um, this is a fascinating conversation. I really, I truly appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate your perspective. And maybe you can just um, close the conversation by sharing with our listeners one more time, um, where they can follow you ultimately get the book and learn more about the work that you're continuing to do.
1: Yeah, man. I uh, first just really want to thank you for a really mindful, thoughtful, interesting conversation. Um and your perspectives are in my opinion really interesting. So, yeah, you can just go to com to learn more if you want. That's where my blogs are. Uh, ultimately, my invitation would be to if you enjoyed this conversation, get personalities and permanent. There's it's it's so much better written <laughs> than I can describe, but there's a lot in there uh that I think will really really reframe a lot of your perspectives Hmm. Uh, i I think that this you know i I know that this book is uh is at a higher tier than many of the books that you would read in this space like this book really presents some very fascinating things that i know will help you in as far as becoming more intentional decide you know making better decisions building more confidence being able to clarify and make decisions about who you want to be and then ultimately uh becoming that person i mean it's very possible there's lots of great science on how to do it And there's lots of very limiting narratives in pop culture that would lead you to uh, being brainwashed, ultimately, into thinking that it's not possible.
0: Well, we're going to make sure, of course, to link to all these resources in the show notes. Again, BocaPodcast.com for everybody listening in. Uh, Make sure that you go follow Benjamin. We'll, We'll link to his Instagram, too. It's just Benjamin underscore Hardy underscore PhD. And, um, and then, of course, BenjaminHardy.com. We'll put this in the show notes. Thanks once again, uh, Dr. Hardy, for making time for all of us today.
1: Oh, yeah. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for, for a great conversation.
0: Thanks so much, photographers, for listening to the Boca Podcast. Will you let us know what you thought of the show by leaving a review of the podcast in the Apple Podcast app? And I'd love to hear from you personally with your thoughts about the podcast and suggestions about future topics and guests for the show. My email is Nathan at Boca podcast.com. We do try to bring this show to you commercial free. So make sure to check out our sponsors photographersedit.com and Milu M-I-I-L-U.com. Photographer's Edit is custom photo editing for the professional photographer and Milu is the simplest way to create and manage timelines and shot lists for the events you're photographing.